Welcome to Invested in Climate. Protecting the planet and decarbonizing the global economy is the challenge of our time. Never before have so many people rallied around a common cause. We all have a role to play, and the opportunity we face is unprecedented. Invested in Climate aims to help people do more to address climate change through their work, investments, learning, lifestyle, and activism. I'm your host, Jason Rissman. I co-lead a climate venturing practice at the design firm IDEO, supporting early-stage climate founders and organizations. I'm also an investor and startup advisor, and have realized that when it comes to climate action, I'll be a lifelong learner looking for the best ways to have a climate-positive impact. If you like what you hear, give us a good rating on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you found us. Follow us on social, subscribe, and spread the word. Find episodes, sign up for updates, get in touch, and visualize your climate action at investedinclimate.com. Thanks for joining. Something felt different. Something was going on that was qualitatively different from what had emerged. And we really stepped back as a firm to think about, A, what's going on? And B, what do we do about it? And I think the conclusion was that we saw a diverse interrelated persistent set of drivers that meant that climate transition and inclusive growth were basically massive accelerating secular themes in the real economy and thus also in markets. There's probably few people who know more about impact investing than John Goldstein. His firm, Imprint Capital, helped pioneer the field before getting acquired by Goldman Sachs in 2015. Now John is the head of Goldman's Sustainable Finance Group offering him a truly unique perspective on the trillions of dollars needed to finance decarbonization and conservation around the world. We talked about how investing in climate has evolved in recent years, the moment we're in today, and what it means for investors. If you're investing in climate or curious about getting started, I think you'll find this episode super helpful. Here we go. John Goldstein, welcome to Invested in Climate. Awesome. Jason, thanks for having me. So glad to have you here today. So are you just down the streets or are you traveling these days? I am traveling broadly, but today finds me here in North Berkeley, California, about two and a half blocks away from you as the crow walks. Very fun that, of course, we are still doing this virtually as the world is these days. Yep, 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 yep. Well, very glad to have you here. John, you are the head of the sustainable finance group at Goldman Sachs. Let's start just by hearing, what is it that you do every day? Yeah, <laughs> it's a very good question and one that uh, my parents have asked at many stages of my career. <laughs> you know, it's, I, I've, I've thwarted them by not having a, a typical job that they can easily explain to people. And you know, Finally, they'll have an answer. Well, they'll have an answer of sorts. But in part, I mean, this is, as you know, the way the world has evolved, this is a newer job. Think about my, you know, my own story of how I got here, which we'll probably talk about in a bit, but to, to sort of simplify. So what the Sustainable Finance Group does is it takes this strategic observation that coalesced within our leadership at Goldman Sachs a number of years back, you know, which is going back even further, you know, the firm has, has a long history around environmental and social issues, some of which were around commercial investing. We had an environmental policy framework back in 2005. Operationally, we've been carbon neutral since 2015. We had programs around inclusive growth. We made important climate investments. We invested in Horizon Wind maybe 15 years ago. We bought Dong Energy, the Danish oil and natural gas company, and turned it into Orsted, 
renewable powerhouse. We've built some of the leading solar platforms in India with Renew Power in Japan and the middle market in the US. Lots of activities going on all around the firm. But call it 2018, something felt different. Something was going on that that was qualitatively different from what had emerged. And we really stepped back as a firm to think about what A, what's going on? And B, what do we do about it? And I think the conclusion was that we saw a diverse, interrelated, persistent set of drivers that meant that climate transition and inclusive growth were basically massive, accelerating secular themes in the real economy, and thus also in markets. So once you have that strategic clarity, what follows is, okay, if this is like looking at, say, technology 10 to 15 years ago, you know, something that is not just going to be its own sector, it's going to permeate almost every aspect of the economy, you need to mobilize around that. And so that was really the mandate given to the sustainable finance group to say, okay, from that strategic clarity, these are effectively mega themes unfolding in the real economy and markets that are going to be increasingly important to the success of our clients and thus to our firm. We need to do what we do with anything else of that importance, which is roll up our sleeves and get to work. And I think our job was really to do three main things. Number one, really drive the development, growth, crystallization of expertise on the subject matter, right? Step one, you have to know stuff. And there's a lot of technical detail underlying climate transition. There's a lot of market detail. These are topics that have tremendous amounts of noise and arm waving and acronyms and cutting through all that to mobilize the best thinking across our global firm. Plus, we got a bunch of really smart clients. There's lots of great people doing great work, you know, many of whom will hopefully show up on your podcast. How do you harness all of that to get a clear behavioral view of both the world as it is? What are people actually doing? What's working, what's not? And then where it's going. So mobilize that view from working with companies, asset managers, allocators, regulators, civil society, peers, colleagues. So mobilize that knowledge, number one. Number two, once you know stuff, you need to be able to do stuff, right? Knowledge can be a necessary but insufficient condition to progress. And so you need to translate that into product services and capabilities you can deliver to clients. And so part two of our job was to help really build up those capabilities that we had across the firm. Three is you need to really deliver that, which is we have large global clients with a variety of needs, interests, challenges, and opportunities. How do we mobilize around this topic to help them identify where they are, have clarity on where they're going, but more importantly, shorten the distance between that point A and that point B? And a lot of that means working across these different divisions. We have four basic businesses at Goldman Sachs, right? Investment banking, helping raise capital for companies, projects, other entities. Global markets, helping uh, investors as they navigate global markets. Asset management, so investing capital, public, private for other people. And then our consumer wealth business, which is taking that from institutions to ultra high net worth individuals all the way down to the broad public through platforms like markets. So those are the four businesses. But the question is, how do we keep them each on the cutting edge in terms of their products or services or capabilities? So the sustainable finance group was really launched with that as the mandate, really. At the highest level, I, I sort of quip but it's not entirely facetious that we were told, help us get really good at this. But concretely, what it meant is really working to figure out how in partnership with colleagues around the firm, we drive number one, that expertise. Number two, we translate that into capabilities. And number three, we deliver that across our global client base. If it's possible, give us a sense of the type of client and also the scale that you're operating at. Are we talking millions of dollars here or hundreds of millions? 
Yeah, this is where somebody might insert the, their sort of Austin Powers quotes and gestures. And it, look, it's a sign of how far <laughs> this field has come. I mean, you know, to put a little perspective on it, in 2019, our CEO announced our 10-year target for sustainable finance, which was $750 billion. And I think we're very proud. We just released our own sustainability report the other week on Earth Day that already after two years, we're north of $300 billion of progress towards that $750 billion. So I think in terms of scale, you know, we're definitely in the billions and hundreds of billions. But if you look at the need, I mean, you know, estimates have ranged that we need $100 to $150 trillion by 2050 to achieve global climate goals. And I've seen estimates from 3 to $6 trillion a year, right? So good news, a lot of capital has been moving. The challenge and opportunity is there's a lot more that needs to get done to capture both the opportunity and meet the imperative. So that gives a little bit of a sense of the scale of how we're thinking about it. And it's come a long, long way. Let's talk about that. You've been working in this space before impact investing even had a name. Tell us about how did you get into the space? How has it evolved? And how would you describe this moment that we're in? Now, with what's happened with the field, I get a lot of people sort of saying, wow, you were so prescient in identifying that this would grow. And as much as I, I wish that were the case, honestly, I, I stumbled into a field that I found fascinating, important, and was lucky enough to work in. And then that field has grown and blossomed, and I've had a lot of good fortune along the way. I, I had another podcast, I not entirely jokingly refer to myself as the Forrest Gump of impact investing, right? A lot <laughs> of serendipity, a lot of good fortune along the way. But I think going back, I worked, helped run, grow, and sell an information business on the side of which we had a philanthropic institute that started exploring this question of markets and impact. And the founder of that business had deep networks with government officials, NGOs, who were trying to puzzle over you know, how do you use markets, how do you use capital to solve social and environmental problems. And, and I got pulled into it. You know, I, I remember one day vividly, I, you know, I got a call at 11.45 in the morning saying, you know, from my boss saying, I'm supposed to go have lunch with the Canadian prime minister and the head of the UNDP. And I'm running late, so can you go? Right. And so little 27 year old me started to find that important people trying to solve problems that mattered were struggling. And how do I adapt this market and investing toolkit to social environmental purpose? And, and I, I would I like to say it's a little bit of a one way door once you encounter that question, that opportunity, it's kind of hard to go back. That became a very captivating force for me that really led to, to moving out to the West Coast in 07. You know, very fortunately, got a, a set of great clients that at about the same time all said, can you help us figure this out? sort of a large corporate, a large family office in the Kellogg Foundation. And at the time, you know, I, I knew a few things, but by no means would I consider myself an expert. So I turned to someone who was an expert. So Taylor Jordan, who was chief investment officer of the Rudolf Steiner Foundation, and it quietly and methodically built a 100% mission line investment portfolio, multi-asset, multi-manager. And he did it, I like to say, in a way that looked suspiciously like investing. You know, this is a field that back then, and even to this day, to some degree, people have had various experiences, right? People have various mental models about what it is, what it isn't, what works and what doesn't. And so Taylor was a wonderful antidote to some of those perceptions. You know, Taylor were wingtips, not Birkenstocks. Taylor used the same charts, analytics and benchmarks as every other investor would do. He was just investing in these different themes in a different way. And after getting trotted out as an exemplar of how to do this well for the third time in the span of about 10 days, he said, why don't we just do this together? 
right? And this is this is early 07, and that's how Imprint Capital started. And I think what we found is from an initial set of clients, well, then, you know, we, I guess we became the, the one-eyed person in the land of the blind. It's not that we were expert, but we had a little more experience and that begat more experience. And I like to say we were foolish enough to decide to build a business around doing deep research and impact themes and sectors and building an institutional investment process for a set of delightful, but occasionally idiosyncratic, finicky, and extremely sophisticated clients. <laughs> So we were foolish enough to decide that that was a business that we would build, and we were lucky enough that it sort of worked out in the end. But that was really Imprint Capital growing as this field grew, 2007 to 2010 to 2012, 2013. 2012, 2013, things started to change again, right? It wasn't just those foundations or those family offices calling us, asking for help. It was some of the largest financial institutions in the world we're getting these questions from their clients and they wanted help. What is this? What isn't it? How do I do it? What can I do myself? What do I outsource? And so we started working with a very different set of clients, uh, spending a lot more time in New York. We got to know Goldman Sachs in late 2014. And honestly, it felt like a lot of these other conversations, right? We have this growing need. How does a firm like yours work with a firm like ours? And, you know, got to know them. And at a certain point, they said, okay, send me a draft contract. What does that look like? And things were proceeding. They said, look, we're very consensus driven. So come do one last teach-in for some of our senior folks. Don't mess up and we'll sign your contract. And, and, you know, came in and had a very engaging, lively conversation with a bunch of really smart people asking really good questions, right? Right out of the bat, we got asked about greenwashing and green bonds. And I I sort of looked at them. I said, good question. I'm curious as to why that's kind of the first question out of the gate. And they said at the time, someone had tried to pitch them a green bond for a parking garage at a university. (laughs) And the reason it was green uh, was because it had two spots for electric vehicles. Right. And so left having had a great conversation, highly engaged, asking great questions and left feeling, okay, that went well. This feels like it'll be another client. And we got a call back two weeks later and they said, yeah, we have this wacky idea. Wonder what you might think about it. But what if we were to buy you? And so there's actually a nice Harvard Business School case study written on the acquisition where eventually the kind of punchline and I won't bore you and your listeners with all the detail. But what we realized is if we took our mission seriously, you know, we'd started the business in the first place to do three things move more money impactfully, do it well, right? Because at every point in this, you're either creating cautionary tales or proof points. And boy, do people remember those cautionary tales for a long, long time, right? So the stakes of quality execution are real. And then finally, we wanted to make it accessible to more people. When we really sat down and thought about it, we realized we were kidding ourselves if we thought we could come anywhere close on those three key objectives on our own, relative to what we could do at Goldman Sachs. And so we agreed to get acquired in, in 2015. And then I spent the next four years within the asset management division, working with a growing set of great colleagues to figure out really how do you, number one, integrate a changing world into our regular way investing processes, right? Whether a client honestly cares or has philosophical beliefs about climate change and climate risk, they all care about risk-adjusted returns, Right, and to the degree that's an important part of generating that, you need to figure out how to weave these considerations in, not just to some special cadre of products or some special segment of clients, but just to your investing. Number two, some clients do care. They have different beliefs, different focuses, different theses, uh, and they do want more tailored products, exposure, and investments. And so how do you use that almost as a research and development agenda to create the toolkit of tomorrow? And three, what I still affectionately refer to as as client therapy, right, which is this is a topic that gets 
organizations sometimes confused, sometimes different people at odds with each other, you know, people can get very stuck. And so I spent a lot of time trying to help people get unstuck. And so that was really, you know, how I spent my time from 2015 to, to late 2018, early 2019. And then I, as I said, I think that really led as the firm was thinking more broadly, I started getting my brain picked on this question of what does the firm do more broadly? And then they asked me to, to head up the newly developed group, which we launched in the middle of 2019. Fantastic. And now, how would you describe this moment that we're in and particularly for investing in climate? This is, I think, a wonderful moment of kind of climate investing and ESG investing kind of growing up. There were early, early days that were quiet lonely hard days in a lot of these these topics. People talk a lot about clean tech 1.0. By the way, it was interesting. I did an interview. I was lucky enough to interview John Doerr about his book, Speed and Scale. And he pointed out that the supposed washout of clean tech 1.0, they looked at their portfolio and I think it ended up being something like a 3X. And so the the kind of story that that really was a bust is maybe not 100% true and we're looking at the results. It's just some of them took some time. But I think they're the early days. Then what happened is this theme started to mainstream relatively quickly. And I think growing awareness of what was going on in the world. And these is just core growth thematics, right? This idea that fundamentally, and look, I mean, you know, we've gotten to the point where companies representing two thirds of GDP have made net zero commitments Asset managers representing $57.5 trillion have made net zero commitments. Banks representing just shy of 40% of global banking assets are in the net zero banking alliance. You have a growing set of commitments and focuses that both come from and also reverberate across the real economy, mobilizing towards, in some ways, where's the end point? Where are we going? You saw this with growing adoption, both in the real economy and markets of things like electric vehicles or renewable power, a lot of the growth themes. And when we look at climate, we break it down into five growth themes, right? We look at clean energy, and that includes generation, includes transport, includes storage, it includes efficiency. Sustainable transportation, you can look kind of across the value chain. Sustainable food and agriculture, similarly, you can look across the value chain from input to fork. Waste and materials, think circular economy. And then finally, ecosystem services. So those themes went from being arguably slightly obscure to being extremely mainstream areas that attracted significant volumes of capital. Now let's look at the last year and even the last call it, you know, three to six months. I think what people are realizing, and I get asked a lot of questions post Russia, Ukraine, is this, is this going to put a halt to climate transition? Is this going to put a halt to all of these thematics? My answer is, is no. I think what it's helping people do is, I think there may have been a certain naivete that this was you know, simpler than it, of course, will be. Massive economic transformation of huge systems like energy are not simple and generally not linear. On the one hand, having this clear view of where things are headed may have gotten some people to what simplistically think it's a straight line. Right. And the reality, I was talking to the CEO of a big financial institution a couple months ago, and they said, look, this is a reminder that energy transition is going to look a lot more like Waze than Google Maps. Hmm. Right. It's going to look more dynamic, adaptive, complex. Speed traps. Potentially, right? The best laid plans, sometimes you need to be ready to change, right? So I think in some ways, it's a healthy back to this growing up process, right? The idea that, and I, the other day I was telling someone, this is kind of a shift from kind of climate beta to climate alpha, right? Once upon a time, just being in these growth themes a little before other people was a great way to invest and be successful. 
these are no longer undiscovered. They're no longer, you know, untrodden fields. And so this is what investing looks like in markets that mainstream, they get competitive, it gets hard, right? And so the idea that climate investing would be any easier than any other type of investing, you know, was probably a, a bit naive to think and to believe. So kind of what does it mean going forward? Back to what I said earlier, I think those underlying themes, commitments, focuses are intact, right? The broad commitment, the broad goal to really have this next industrial revolution, you know, give the world its best chance of meeting ambitious climate goals. So the, the direction of travel is clear. The endpoint is clear. Navigating it is complicated and it's going to take skill to find, you know, and it's not necessarily these bright lines of good sector, bad sector. It's as with so many things in economic transformation, who's going to adapt and who's going to win in a changing environment, which will tend to be adding value and insight at a more company project or investment level than painting with a very broad brush. That's a huge part of this next step is, is the reality is to succeed in this is going to look like succeeding in any other market. It's going to take specialization, skill, expertise, research, and depth. That means you have an edge as you navigate a market that is no longer a, a quiet little uh, sideline. The third point I'd make is as the world navigates energy transition, one basic fact is high and volatile energy prices make efficiency a really good investment and they make some substitutes a really good investment, right? We have a supply demand imbalance in energy right now. And we've had effectively you know, structural declines in CapEx in energy for some time. And interestingly enough, driven much less by ESG or climate investment considerations than by just capital discipline, right? I, I think, you know, I saw a survey of energy CEOs recently that said that the majority of them said it was just investors and a focus on capital discipline versus ESG or fossil fuel divestment or anything of, of that sort. And so we have this supply demand imbalance. And I think, look, we, we got to figure out a way to keep the lights on. And at the end of the day, this triangle of how do we have energy that's affordable, reliable, and green, those are sometimes hard things to overcome when we have some structural underinvestment combined with near-term disruption, which is what we have going on right now. But the price spikes and the volatility that are happening uh, make a really good business case for efficiency and for substitutes. And I think sometimes also people lose sight of that, right? There's urgency in keeping the lights on, but fundamentally the economic drivers uh, in terms of what that, you know, the, the way it improves the business case for transition actually is, is, is something to not lose sight of. For your climate investments, what does good look like? What are you measuring? Is it simply risk-adjusted returns, which you said is something that everyone cares about, of course, but are you also able to quantify the impact from a mission standpoint or other environmental considerations? So we've been looking at different approaches to impact measurement for quite some time, right? There's nothing like having your core client base be large, sophisticated foundations whose core business is having an impact in the world and quantifying it as your client base to drag you into this or encourage or support you into this. So <laughs> we've been looking at how to measure and assess this since call it 2010. This is another area where the dialogue, I think, sometimes gets a little simplistic. I think sometimes there's a desire, there are simple, magical answers that cover everything, a unified field theory of metrics that will make it all work out. And I think sometimes people say, if we can't get that, let's just throw up our hands. And I think that's not necessarily a super constructive approach. I think what we find is, number one, identifying the linkages between those impacts and the business case, right? So to your point, you know, I don't think it's either risk-adjusted returns or climate impact. When I look at a lot of companies, the way they grow, the way they make money, their value proposition, is their success at helping other people meet their climate targets, right? Which is at the end of the day, I talked to a company the other day, and their value proposition is 
come by my service, I will help you meet your climate goals because I am a lower carbon way to do X and Y than my competitors, right? And so that alignment between understanding the impact they have, that's a core part of how they sell their product and service, right? And I think we're seeing a lot more of these intersections where you're particularly one of the, the, I think, less well-appreciated drivers of climate investing are supply chains. We don't have a price on carbon in the U.S., but we have enough big people at the center of large supply chains that there's real pressure on that. And I think that's something that is often underestimated is the ability to help supply chain partners meet their climate goals becomes a competitive advantage, or in some cases, a competitive necessity. Back to this relationship, I think it's maybe not as constructive to think about is it about risk-adjusted returns or climate impact. I think step one is understand in a world where these things are important. How does your product service help address that? Is that a core driver of your growth? And how do your operations make you resilient in a world where basically being more efficient with physical capital is good for margins and makes you a little more resilient in, in moments like today? I think this is another thing I pointed out to people is, you know, when asked about will this accelerate climate transition, I said, well, look, I'll talk about the future, but let's just talk a minute about the past. You know, the people that are in the best position now, frankly, are the folks that have tackled this, you know, over the last few years people that have worked to find ways to be lean with their use of energy inputs, efficient with resources. At a time when it's harder to get resources, and those are more expensive, you're awfully happy with the investments you made a number of years back to, to lessen that dependency and to give you some insulation from those, those shocks. So I think there are those two intersections. One is your product and service solves other people's climate problems. The other is you've positioned yourself to be resilient and really protect your margins and manage your risk you know, as some of these dynamics play out. I think that's the first point. I think the second point is we do have some people that care about quantifying that climate impact, right? We have some people trying to figure out if they're going to make a net zero portfolio commitment. Well, there are two sides of the ledger, right? There's, you know, what carbon am I putting out and what am I getting rid of, right? And so I think we do have people working on that methodologically. I think there's still work to be done to get that to kind of the next level, but I think it's an important piece of the journey here. But I think once again, for us, step one is just let, let's look at the core of the business model and back to, you know, imprint capital back in 2010, you know, we reformatted our diligence memos. So at the top of each is what's the financial thesis? Why do we think this will make money? And what's the impact thesis? Why do we think this will do good? And having those next to each other was pretty powerful because you saw how do those two things relate, right? At the end of the day, if the way you make money is the way you have an impact in the world, that tends to bode well. Somebody has used the phrase collinearity, right? This idea that doing more good makes me more money, making more money does more good. Like that ultimately is a very resilient trait to have in a business model. I think a lot of the interesting bits here, are not necessarily in the technical element of just quantifying this, that, or the other thing, it's really using it as a way to go deeper in the business. What are the growth drivers and how aligned are you with that or not? And then from an operational perspective, how resilient are you to the ebbs and flows of what this global economy is going to throw at you? There's been an explosion of interest in ESG investing, but ESG also faces a, a ton of criticism for its lack of specificity, rigor, and standardization. In other words, some people say it's too mushy. What are your thoughts on the state of ESG? The state of ESG in some ways is very similar to the state of climate investing, right? We're getting to a new chapter and it's a lot of what ESG growing up looks like, right? And I see this in the dialogue. I see this in the day-to-day -day practice of investors, right? You're talking to large asset managers. They generally have gone through the following journey. Step one, didn't do much. 
Step two applied some simple screens. Okay, let's avoid some stuff that my, my clients may not want me to own. Step three in some cases was to outsource it. Buy externally produced scores or ratings and you know, buy an answer. But then what often happened is as this became more of a central investment issue, asset managers tend not to buy answers to investing questions. They buy inputs, they buy data, they buy opinions, but they don't buy answers. It's their job to come up with the answers. And so the journey for this going from this sort of fringe to the periphery to the core is part of the story of it becoming increasingly insourced. Because if it's a core investment question, you know, asset managers have lots of very, very smart investors they've assembled at great time, trouble, and expense into an organization, leveraging their knowledge and their expertise, complementing it with other data, other hires. It's very, very important. But at the end of the day, the more this becomes a real investment question, the more it becomes embedded into the core investing process. So that's number one. Number two, I think some of the pushback is based on you know, people beating up on straw men versus criticisms that resonate with me. What I mean by that is, you know, some people will say, oh my gosh, to drive true global change, we need policy as necessary, policy reform, policy change. It's not either or, right? When our CEO announced our $750 billion target in December of 2019, talked about the need for the world to put a price on carbon. When we released, you know, Goldman Sachs released its updated climate report in December, we talked about the fact there's a policy gap right now relative to achieving important global goals. And so I think this either or mindset, right? Because I, I think I'm sure some people overhyped, overclaimed, et cetera, right? That happens in a great many disciplines of impact and of investing. And when you put the two together, you know, exuberance and enthusiasm, I'm sure led some people to paint with an overly broad brush. And that's why, look, we've tried to be thoughtful and measured about what this can and can't do. And so in that vein, a lot of the criticisms are, number one, gasp, this is not a panacea to all the world's problems. True. Or gasp, markets alone won't solve all these problems, we need policy too. True. A, a recent one is that you know, externally produced ESG scores don't give deep insight into the impact companies have on the world. And that's not what they really ever claim to do, right? And so I think a lot of the arguments, a lot of the pushback, and, and look, there may have been people who really overclaimed and overhyped. And once again, that happens in lots of different markets. But leaving that aside, I think what I see these arguments often are, are kind of beating up on a straw man that represents an overly simplistic view or an overly optimistic or naive view of what this could or couldn't be. For me, the litmus test is, are people asking the same question of ESG that they would ask of investing? Does ESG work? I'm going to debunk whether it works or not. Well, would you would you ask the question, does investing work? Does ESG outperform? Would you ask that by anything else? Does X thing outperform? Like, no, it depends. It depends on how skillfully you apply it. It depends on the market. It depends on a whole host of things, right? At the end of the day, investing is hard. You know, not everybody does it as well and successfully as they would like to do it. And so the notion that ESG investing is magic. And I, I, I spent a, a long time sort of saying, look, it's wrong to think of ESG as, it. well, tell me, is it magic? It's alpha pixie dust you sprinkle on a portfolio and it grows overnight, or it's poison. It means you are condemned to underperformance and sorrow. The reality is it depends. It's like any other investment tool, which is there are people that are good at it. There are people that are not as good at it, right? It's hard and it's complicated. I want to honor a lot of these things, tease out important questions and considerations. So people enter eyes wide open. What are you getting? What are you not getting? I think that's a, it's a good thing to do. But I, I think it is less of a critique of the discipline intrinsically 
and more of certain elements of claims some people may or may not have made, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. John, for everyday investors that care about climate, what kinds of investment opportunities are available to them? And how would you recommend that they get started? With the proviso, as my compliance colleagues would have me give, that this is not investment advice, I think a couple of elements I would think about. I think number one, the good news is there's a growing range of options across a growing suite of asset classes, approaches, and styles from passive investing to active investing, equities to bonds, You know, investing in things that are more around managing climate risk or investing in climate opportunities. So there's a growing set of choices available to a growing set of investors. Once upon a time, I think there was a view that this was largely private investments only accessible to ultra high net worth individuals. And I think there's a growing array of options in the marketplace, I think, that people can look at, number one. Number two, I would sort of never forget that climate investing is investing. You, you can be right about a theme and wrong about your execution. Right. And I, I think we've seen this happen with investors on a whole host of sustainability themes where they'll be right about the direction of travel, but how you execute on that theme matters. And so I the strongly encourage the listeners to execute with the same care, discipline, and rigor. Use benchmarks, look at fees, all the things you would ordinarily do as you're building and managing a, a portfolio. So good practice remains good practice. What about strategies like divestment? And of course, where that Goldman Sachs has a policy of engagement of working with fossil fuel companies and, and others that are working to transition to a more sustainable future. But at an individual level, can divestment matter? Can it have an impact? And is it something that people should consider? At the end of the day, as an individual matter, People investing there, especially with your own money, you can make a variety of choices that feel right to you at the balance of how are you stewarding your resources in a way that you think makes sense relative to your time horizon, you risk all of the elements that go into any investment strategy. And, you know, to some degree, vote, you know, some individuals with their portfolios kind of vote with their dollars, right? They want to express things that are important to them. There's a sense of identity. And that looks lots and lots of different ways. And this gets back to the conversation earlier. There's a growing variety of, of offerings out in the marketplace that people can can tap that match a growing variety of those interests and needs. And so, you know, the good news is there are more choices for folks based on their own preferences, priorities, parameters, and their own theory of change, right? And I think that's, once again, I think a good part of the development of the market is just more options for people to participate in the way that feels right for them. Right. I have a final question that I typically ask our guests, but before I go there, is there anything that else I should have asked you about your work and, and your perspective? One is the drivers of this, I think, are not always as well understood in a way that means that sometimes people don't necessarily trace the transmission mechanisms, right? And I think when we look at it fundamentally, you have these different pieces of the ecosystem whose priorities and preferences translate into economic activity and then cascade into the thematics we're seeing, right? Consumers, you know, want to buy different types of products. In some cases, they care how those products were produced and by whom they were produced. Businesses are increasingly looking at business counterparties around their practices, their disciplines, their goals, their objectives. You know, investors increasingly care, policymakers care, you know, employees care a lot, right? I think this is something where this is increasing when I talk to corporate leaders this is important to their attracting and retaining a great workforce. And so I think the diversity of some of these underlying drivers in the real economy and the markets, I think sometimes is not always appreciated. I think number number one. 
I think number two is just, I like to say, I, I feel sometimes I'm in the cognitive bias business, right? Which is people are often too predisposed to love or too predisposed to hate a lot of these things. But I was just talking to some colleagues about this earlier today. And I, I think my strong encouragement for this is, is for people to sort of step back and use the same kind of analytical rigor and care they would to anything else that matters. I think if you find yourself deeply embedded, convinced you know the answer, these are complicated markets that are changing really, really fast. I see folks that are nervous because they see hype and all sorts of things that get them nervous. And I see enthusiasts. And I think at the end of the day, if you feel you're too far on one end of the spectrum, particularly when you're applying this to an investment portfolio, I think it's good to kind of take a minute and think more as an analyst than as an advocate, right? I think that's, that's where I often see people get out of an investing frame and into almost a more theological frame. And I think that can be great for dinner table conversation, but it's not always great for building and managing portfolios. Um, I think that would be be number two. And then number three is just, it would be hard to overstate how fast this has come in terms of embedding itself at the heart of large organizations in the economy. And my proxy for that in some ways is the answer to a question I get a lot, which is I talk at campuses, I talk to a lot of young people that want to work in the sector. And I go through you know, how I've answered that question over time. Right in the early imprint capital days, the answer was good luck, not a lot of jobs here. Then you know a few people started hiring around impact and ESG and started growing. Then there was a period of time when actually there are like quite a few opportunities you know with dedicated roles in the field. But what's happened now, and I, I just did um, we have something called the sort of MD orientation. So the new managing director class is oriented, and they spent a couple of days really learning lots of stuff and talking to great leaders all over the firm. And I was you know lucky enough to have a session with that crew. And I asked the folks in the audience, and I mean there were probably two three hundred people in the room. How many of you have worked recently on something around sustainable finance just in your day job? And I actually took a picture of the audience because I can't give you the percentage, but 60 to 70% of the people raise their hands, right? And I think it's a sign of where this has come. Those are not people that have ESG or climate in their titles, right? Those are just people out doing their jobs. But you know, their job is to work with clients across the global economy to help accomplish their most important goals. You know, that's, in essence, what Goldman Sachs does. And increasingly, those most important goals that clients want help with you know, tie to sustainable finance. And I think what it means for a lot of people is their chance to make a kind of a day job contribution to this has expanded tremendously. Right. Increasingly, there are relatively few perches where you can't lean into really driving progress on a lot of these things because, once again, there's that dollar and cents translation. Ultimately, being more efficient with physical capital tends to be good for margins and tends to give you some resilience in the event of shocks or challenges in the marketplace, is you know, certainly what we're experiencing now. And in some cases, maybe a growth driver as you sell into markets that, that carry this. And I kind of connecting two points, right? This point with the point about cognitive bias. One thing that, that a story I tell a lot, and this is maybe three, four years ago, a big pension fund was having us do an ESG portfolio health check, go in, over their investment manager lineup and evaluate their ESG skills, bona fides, their capabilities. And so what we ended up doing is we went and we you know, sent out emails. We said, we're going to have a conversation. And we had these conversations. And I remember two back-to-back calls. So the first folks sent us an email back saying, we're so excited for the conversation. You know, you know, they had six attachments with the awards they'd won and press clippings and documents and reports and this, that, and the other thing. And the second sent us a very terse reply. And all it said is, I believe this will be a brief conversation. So we get on the phone with the first manager and they have so much to say. They're so excited. But at a certain point, I suppose to say, who is that talking? 
He said, oh, it's the head of sustainability. I said, we'd love to hear what the portfolio manager has to say about how she actually manages her portfolio. And as the portfolio manager walked through her process, it was pretty clear that none of these considerations really showed up in a material way. Second phone call. We were on the phone and the first 30 seconds were extremely awkward, slightly painful silence. And I'm sure you've been on calls or in moments or in meetings when just you could just tell someone saying, can you please stop? Can we be done? Can we go home now? Can this be over? <laughs> and I said, look, and, and Jason, you know, I, I kind of have these big black notebooks I take notes in and I write it. And I said, I took my big notebook. I just closed it. I said, got it. I wrote in my notebook, you do not do ESG. Understood. What do you do? And so, you know, investors like talking about investing, right? And so they started talking about how they invest. And it turned out the largest area of active risk in their portfolio was investing in middle market European industrial companies. And their thesis at the time was that at the end of the day, you had a lot of these middle market industrial companies with pretty outdated manufacturing. And a little bit of capital expenditure to modernize that would, number one, make the manufacturing much more efficient, good for margins, less waste, water, less power usage. And number two, that if they marketed those efficiency traits, selling to B2B and consumer markets in Northern Europe, they can often command a small price premium. And I sort of paused and I kind of scratched my head at that point. I said, well, you know, in my world, we might call that greening manufacturing company. And they said, well, we don't. <laughs> and I think it's that great example of for too long, the language around climate or ESG has led people to think it's a sort of a sideline, it's a separate discipline, it's philosophical, ideological, theological, or it's a get your glossary and go learn a foreign language, right? And I think that embeds some of this cognitive bias I talked about that leads people to not take a fresh look. And so often I'll have these experiences where people will say, I don't believe in this, I don't do this. And when you actually look at what they're doing, they'll say, oh, well, that's just good investing. Right? And I had this with another investor one day. And at each turn, I pointed out things that they were doing that were really good, strong practices around ESG investing. Like, no, that's not ESG. That's just good investing. That's just me being smart. That's just me you know, identifying growth themes and managing risk. At a certain point, I kind of threw up my hands in exasperation. And I said, you're not allowed to say anything that makes sense can't count. Right? You're not allowed to have a tautology that ESG is exclusively defined as nonsense. You know, and, and I think there still is a lot of that out there. And I think getting past that, right, just taking a fresh look, let's look at the world. Let's look at drivers of growth, of risk, and of margins. How does that apply? And how do we navigate a changing world and whether we're managing a company or managing a portfolio? John, thank you for that. You have a really unique position being part of an organization that is moving hundreds of billions of dollars towards sustainable finance. And you have a really unique perspective of being able to see how it needs to add up with others in the field to trillions of dollars. So I asked this question, recognizing that, that you have this bird's eye view with a perspective on what it all needs to add up to, to be significant. The question is about individual action and what everyday people can do. This podcast, Invested in Climate, aims to help people do more to address climate change through their work, their investments, learning, lifestyle, and activism. We've talked a lot about investments, but I'm curious about those other categories, work, learning, lifestyle, and activism. What do you see as the most important opportunities for everyday people who care about climate? What can they do that can actually be impactful? I think there are a couple things, and I, I guess I would sort them a little bit. And honestly, some of them end up being constructively selfish. And what I mean by that is, number one, the biggest lever for a lot of people is their work, 
right? It's where they spend a significant amount of their time. And I think increasingly there are ways to lean into that in your day job, which often is good for professional advancement. I just got off the phone with a client who originally was the head of impact investing at a big institution and then got promoted to being the head of investing, right? So, you know, being good at this is sometimes good for people's career, sometimes good for people's engagement, enjoyment of their their work. And so that is not a selfless act, right? I think that's something people can get a lot of fulfillment out of that also allows them to move the needle. And I think a lot of the things on the personal side, I, I find similarly, I, you know, a simple prosaic thing, I was talking to a colleague who used to work for me and, you know, she said, oh, I had a John Goldstein moment. So, you know, I was, I was running a little late for meeting. I'm like, oh, do I hop in a cab or do I just have a lovely walk and I'm a couple minutes late? And she said, I did the walk, right? And she said, I was happier for it. It's not that that was necessarily a virtuous act that got to have a lovely walk outside, clear her head. And it also happens to be, you know, a very sustainable mode transit. I think the same thing. I, you know, one of the happiest phases I had is when both my kids were going to a school that was about a mile and change away. And we would just all bike to school together. It turns out to be faster than driving, more efficient than driving, more environmentally friendly. It's good exercise. You get outside and great family bonding. And so what I often find is a lot of the personal activities, it's not necessarily about sacrifice. It's when you try those things out, they end up being fulfilling. You know, I mean, I, for, for me, it allows us to have an active family lifestyle together um, that we really appreciate. And so I think sometimes, you know, there's a little bit of a, I think people, you know, talk about Grape nuts, once upon a time, their ad was, you know, a, you know, sort of the right thing to do and a tasty way to do. The idea, though, that it's like, well, it's really the right thing to do. And you're going to sacrifice and maybe there's stuff that's tastier, but it's it's the right thing to do. And I think in a huge number of the cases, what I find is it's the pleasant, enjoyable thing to do that makes me happy and makes my family happy. And oh, yeah, it also probably adds to sort of the little bit that we're adding on the sustainability scales. And so I guess get out of this sort of fa- often false dichotomy. Lean in, try some things out. You may find you like them. Um, and then once you like them, you may find they're constructively infectious of people around you. John, thank you so much. Uh, the biking example resonates and it happens re- to remind me that I believe you used to bike some 50 miles or so to work on occasion from the East Bay here down into the peninsula. So I believe that's uh, glad to hear that you're passing that on to your next generation. <laughs> well, I ho- hopefully uh, James and Eli will be up to that distance uh, before too long. Great. John, thank you so much and, and best of luck with all the work you're doing. Great, Jason. Really appreciate it. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Invested in Climate. Please remember to rate us on Apple, Spotify, or Google. Find show notes, sign up for updates, get in touch, and visualize your climate action at investedinclimate.com. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and does not constitute financial, accounting, or legal advice. Thanks again.